There he is. How you doing, Nathan? So we're in 1 Corinthians 10, and we're, we're really at verse 15. And so I'm going to read this uh, section, and then I'm going to uh, do a little bit of what Dr. Kara would say, kind of theologizing um, a bit. So, so 1 Corinthians 10, 14-22, let me read that. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That's good to just remember that that's a big part of this. Idolatry is something they want to stay away from. I speak to sensible, I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, so he's referring to a specific cup, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we are, so you kind of, he has this 16 kind of sets the, the groundwork theology, and then uh, 17 and following, he's kind of fleshing it out in a, in a real life situation. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. And again, he's remember at the beginning of chapter 10, he had gone back and was talking about Old Testament Israel and applying it to New Testament believers. He says, Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participating in the altar? So he's also connecting like Old Testament worship with New Testament worship. Um, what do I imply then? That the food offered to idols is anything? So like we would say, are the elements themselves anything? And his, his answer is no. Uh, is the idol then anything? Uh, no. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So he's basically making the case that if you actually participate in idolatrous worship, you are actually, in some sense, fellowshipping with, in communion with, demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. So you can't... And this is, I'm assuming, implied from God. Like, God's not going to let you do both at the same time, right? I mean, uh, um, in some sense, they may have already been doing that, or he wouldn't be having to say this. And so he's basically saying, God wants all of you, not just part of you. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Now, he's going to, in 1 Corinthians 11, where we do all of our rubrics for communion, he's going to be talking about that. But I felt like it was important today for us to, to just kind of we're going to talk through the different uh, positions on communion, how people think about communion um, from like a systematic way. And it comes out of, I guess it was, I don't know if it was Laura's or Juliet's question at the end of last week. So we're going to deal a little bit more with that. 
but when he talks about this cup of blessing, okay, this cup of blessing, what, what is he practically referring to? Don't think of the Old Testament necessarily. Just what is he referring to when he says this cup of blessing? What is he talking about? Yeah, he's, talking, he's literally talking about the cup up here. Uh, we have many cups that you drink from, but there's the one chalice that I have. There's one cup of blessing is what he's talking about. Now that cup of blessing comes out of the, the, uh, the um, um, Old Testament during Passover. They would, they would in the meal, they would, they would eat, they would drink, they would eat and meet, drink. And so there's this third cup during the, the, the Passover meal that was considered the cup of blessing. And, the, and we think that that was, the, that was the cup that Jesus then was lifting up when he was talking to his disciples and said, this is my, uh, the new covenant in my blood, drink of it all of you. So that's what he's talking about. So, uh, so then Paul assumes that there is some sort of communion with the reality when you're taking part of the symbols. Are you following me there? So some sense when you are drinking the the wine, you're not just drinking the wine. You are participating in Christ's blood. So So historically, the Catholic Church has has taken that, and so they have said, yes, we really take that seriously. When you partake of, and they call it the Mass, or the Eucharist, when you do that, Eucharist just means blessing, when you partake of that, you are actually partaking of Christ's blood. Okay, And so I have here, the elements transubstantiate. Now, you have to understand that much of Catholicism is based upon Platonic theory, Plato. You guys, if you're not a philosophy major, it doesn't mean anything to you. But Plato was very big in talking about that there's something called forms. So if you had like, um, this is, okay, what do you call this? It, not, it's a Bible, but what, basically what is it? It's a book, right? So, and, and, well, how do you know it's a book? Would be, Huh? It looks like a book. So, where, but where do you get this idea of bookness from? Like, where does that come from? Right. So, the, so Plato says that there's something in reality, like uh, beyond this present reality of of book. And so, this actual book kind of conforms to that reality. And therefore, um, this is not the perfect book. It's a, it's kind of a shadow of the form of book and glory. Right, so it seems really weird. It's, 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 if you're not studied philosophy, this is very strange. Okay, so, but Catholicism is based upon this, and you will not understand the Catholic view unless you understand this. Okay, so what what the Catholic when they say transubstantiate, and, I, and it, you know, we always say it transforms into the blood of Christ, and you say, but it still tastes like wine or grape juice. Right, it doesn't transform to anything. Well, the, the the Platonic theory is that that it still looks and tastes and feels in your world like, like wine, but in its form, it's like hidden spiritual form, it has now become Christ's blood. 
So that's, that's what they're saying. It's based on Platonic theories, why a lot of the reformers hated Plato. They didn't want anything to do with Plato, because it was like, this has is, this is corrupted the church in a lot of ways. So, so I'm not going to go into philosophy on this now, but you just need to understand that Catholics are not saying that it actually becomes blood. So you like if you, you know, took a pint of blood out and put it in a cup, and then you had the, the, um, the, uh, the wine, and then I bless it as a priest, it doesn't actually become the blood, right? It doesn't actually look like. They're not that dumb. They're not saying that, okay? But they are actually saying that in its essence, in its true form of what it is, it is Christ's blood. And so you are truly partaking of his blood, okay? So that's what they mean by transubstantiation. That being said, they are very strong that if you're actually drinking the blood of Christ, you are receiving grace from, him, from drinking that blood, does that make sense? You're actually, you, you are, you are, it's the blood of Christ is in you and it's working down inside of you. And so it's an actual participation in the blood of Christ. And so the grace is given, I think I have here, grace present in the elements themselves. Okay? And what they're doing is they're taking the language of 1 Corinthians 10, they're taking the language of John 6 where Jesus says, you must eat my, bread, my body and drink my blood or you'll have no part of me. And they're taking that very literally. Okay, Now, that becomes then, this actually, uh, instead of it just being a table, which is what we call this, right? This is a communion table. In a, in a Catholic church, it is an altar. Okay? So if, if you're actually breaking the body of Christ and you're actually pouring out His blood, then you are continuing the sacrifice of Christ. So it's like He's dying afresh every time you take Mass. And Mass actually means like body. So like Christ is present in what's happening. This is why the reformers hated this. Okay? Because then I write up here it's a true re-sacrificing or continuing the sacrifice of Christ. So that's that's so when we we would argue as a reformed person, we like the fact that there's grace present. But we don't like the, the re-sacrifice of Christ. We don't like transubstantiation. And we would consider it an actually a, a heretical affront to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Okay? That's, that's why it matters to us so much. So, uh, any questions on that? Just, just to help you. A lot of times people don't understand why we don't like the Catholic understanding of the Mass. Yes. So is that why um, the elements that are left over at the end, yeah. like Catholics have to make sure that those are disposed of properly yes. because it, it is the body and blood. Yes. Uh, Luther was absolutely petrified that he would actually uh, handle those elements wrongly. And, and actually early on, I don't know if it's the first one or not, but he actually spills. He's shaking so much, he spills some of the, the, the wine. And it's like, 
you know, and I think that was actually influential in him changing some of his views on this, that, that the elements themselves have become this, and they remain that. They don't ever, you know, which, okay, now think about the text we're in right now. Is it not true that he says in chapter 10, what do I imply then that the food offered to idols is anything? You see what he's saying there? He's like, is it a matter of the food itself? And his, his answer is, no, it's not a matter of the food, which is why he can tell a Christian if there is food that's at the market that has been offered to idols, it really doesn't matter. You're not continuing to participate in idols because you eat that food. It's not in the elements. So even in Paul's argument, it's like refuting the Catholic position here. Uh, I don't think the Catholic, they probably have some answer for that. I don't know what it is, but um, anyway, yes. And so this re-sacrifice of Christ, the grace being present in the elements, those are the things that, that uh, they reacted to. So we'll talk about the Lutheran. The Luther, along with all the Reformers, all of them will say there is no true sacrifice in communion. All of them agree. There's one finished sacrifice. Christ's death on the cross has been, he died once, once for all. There's no continuation of the sacrifice of Christ. It is just not, it, we have a memory only of the one finished sacrifice. And that unites all these positions on this. To why Jesus says, do this as often as you do it in remembrance of his death. You're not, you're not continuing that death, you're remembering that death. Okay? So we're all agreed here. All, the Zwinglian, uh, sometimes called the memorial only. We all agree that, that, that remembering what Christ has already accomplished is a, is a huge part of this. The Lutheran view, because uh, he's not Plato, but maybe he's somewhat uh, influenced by Plato, I don't know. Uh, Luther uh, taught that the bread is just bread. The, the, the wine is just wine. But the body of Christ, and this is, this is hard to imagine, the body of Christ is not only present in glory, but it is present in, alongside of, underneath, around the bread and wine. You say, well, how do you know that? And now he would, Luther, and if you talk to Lutherans today, I think they're pretty consistent. I grew up Lutheran, so I, I've, I know this. They, they, don't, they don't accept this as a matter of logical consistency. I think they just say, the Bible seems to say it, and we don't understand how that works, but we're okay with that. So the Lutherans are much bigger on mystery. So when, it, when we say consubstantiation, substance is what we're talking about. The substance of Christ. Not just his soul, 
spiritual part of Christ, but His body and His blood are present in the sacrament. Okay? And it's, it's a mystery that they just accept. I personally, growing, having grown up Lutheran, I, I respect their, um, their willingness to say, hey, this is mysterious. I don't get it, but we're going to accept it. You know, um, So that side of me, I'm like, yeah, I can, I can. There's a lot of things. I don't understand union with Christ, but I teach it all the time to you guys. Um, so I, I appreciate that. On the other hand, I think they're putting mystery in a place where it doesn't need to be put, if that's the, way, the easiest way to say it. It's like, I, I remember you know, kind of being taught things like, okay, look at this, and it looks like a page, or it looks like this, but it's, there's something else there. And you know, I'd be like, oh, okay, you know, <laughs> you know, as a kid. So, um, Mike, you said the Bible seems to. They say that the Bible seems to say to teach this. So, where would they say that comes from? Well, I think this passage, and then also John six, where it says, um, I mean, Jesus emphatically in John six says uh, he doesn't say you need to partake of a symbol of my blood. He says, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. If you eat of it, you will not die. I am the living bread. Um, Jesus said, how can, he, how can you do this? And, and he just pushes it even harder. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Right? So later on in, in John 6, he says, my words are spiritual. So, but, but still, Jesus could have been... He could have been a lot more clear, I think, if he was... He really wants people to be connected with his physical death on the cross. And so, Dr. Kelly used to say it this way. You're not just united to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. You are united to him in his physical existence. Because salvation for you was one in his physical body. And so he says, you, this is what Jesus is saying. You have to not just trust in God. You have to trust in this human being that shed his blood on a cross and that that, that work of Christ is somehow applied to you. So, that's, so it's, it's, there's a lot of... You're united to his body. And I'll get to this in a minute when I get to the reform view. But you can understand in the Lutheran view, again, and I think I put a question mark because I was a little bit, I, I did some reading, but I didn't do enough research of what they're teaching today and stuff. But, but they believe that grace is always present. So similar to the Catholic view, that if you actually come and partake of it, that there's grace that is present. So may not be entirely saving grace, but some sort of grace is present at this time. Um, I, I, even though I don't hold to the Lutheran position, I have no problem if the gospel is proclaimed partaking of communion in a Lutheran church. Now, there have been times I went home to my church back home and we were really we were all over the place, weren't we, Robin? Because I think Robin and the kids went and participated in communion. 
And I just, I didn't, I, I didn't think the preacher had communicated the gospel at all. And so I just, I'm not going to take it. Of course, it looked like I'm sitting back just taking care of Jenny. So in our church back home, everybody knows me. They literally asked me, do you want us to bring communion to you? <laughs> it was really weird. <laughs> um, and I didn't. But there have been other times where I have partaken of it there because the gospel's been proclaimed. I think that Christ is lifted up. And so um, anyway, so I, but I don't think that fundamentally, if you partake of communion in a Lutheran church, that you're, you're denying the gospel. I think, it's that, I think they're okay. The Catholic view, I think you're actually denying the sufficiency of Christ. And Catholics get this because they... they <laughs> Not only do they not want to partake of the Protestant communion, they don't want Protestants partaking of their communion. You see, I mean, because it's, this is it. And historically, if you have this kind of power over whether someone actually partakes of Christ, you have a lot of power. There was a time in the 12th century where um, the ruler of England uh, basically was at odds with the Pope. And the, um, and the Pope basically put all of England under interdict, which means that they couldn't partake of communion, the Mass. And literally, the people felt so strongly about this that they were going to hell because they could not partake of the Mass, that they forced the England to, like, capitulate. Um, and now that, that changes later on with Henry VIII and all that stuff, you know, but... But at the time, in the 12th century, it was so strong that you can imagine like a whole government just bowing itself to the, the Pope because their people were afraid that they were going to go to hell because they couldn't actually physically partake of the elements. That's how strong this was. So, Okay, so the Reformed people come along, Luther uh, and a guy named Zwingli actually uh, are contemporaries, and they actually agree on everything in the Reformation, they come to communion, and they cannot agree on communion. And at least at the time, Zwingli was straight memorial. There are some testimonials that maybe he, um, some of the stuff that he writes later on sounds like he's much more in the Reformed camp, uh, which I'll explain in a moment. But at least in this, this uh, meeting that they have, um, they, they, they leave angry at each other, bitterly angry at each other. And Calvin, which is in the, he's the reform view, Calvin was um, a little bit younger. So he's like the new kid on the block. And you see God's providence in this, you know. Had a mature Calvin been there, maybe he would have brought everybody together, I don't know. But, um, but they, they don't uh, see eye to eye. The Zwinglian view is um, that the presence of Christ is only in the memory of the worshiper. Think about that. So like, um, Clark, how long ago did your dad die? 82. 82. So we could, we could talk about your dad's death. We could talk about your dad. We could talk about good things he did, bad things he did, all those kind of things. But it's only, his dad is only present in Clark's mind, in his memory. He's not actually here, 
right? That's the memorial position. So um, that means there's no grace given in the sacrament. Yes. I'm pretty certain that everybody except for Lutherans and some Reformed people are in this camp today. And I would say that even some Reformed people are in this camp today. Uh, so it's, this is the dominant position, at least in America. Um, I'm not saying that there's no grace. Because isn't there grace, as Clark remembers his dad, he can benefit from that, he can, he can be encouraged, he can draw strength from that. We're not saying that there's not actual grace to be had in partaking of communion. We're just saying that there's not grace being given in communion. You following that? It's a fine distinction, but it's real. And a lot of people don't even, they don't, they don't see that. And this is, you know... Um, I'm not exactly sure because I haven't, I lived in this position for a while, kind of as I was coming out of my Lutheran position and, and kind of rejecting that, but I, I haven't lived in it enough recently um, to know um, um, a lot of the ins and outs of it. Um, I know it's not considered a seal. It's an ordinance. It's an act of obedience. You do it by faith. Those sorts of things. How is that grace then different from the grace that we consistently have because of the Holy Spirit living in us? Well, okay. So, um, whenever you're dealing with sacraments in general, um, a sacrament is a sign. So it's not the reality. And I think, I think uh, at least these two views hold that, that it's not the reality. The Catholic view actually says it is the reality. But what we would, I would argue that the Holy Spirit is the reality. The Holy Spirit is the member of the Trinity that unites you to Christ and to his body. So without the Spirit, there is no union with Christ. That's, that's so that, but that's a reality. And then you say, well, if you have the reality, why do you still need the sign? And that, that's a real question, right? Because if I've got union with Christ and I have the Spirit indwelling in me, why do I need a sign to remind me of it? It's like if I were in glory right now, I don't think I would need the sign at all. I would just be experiencing the reality. But for whatever reason, in this life, Christ institutes the signs, baptism and communion. Uh, he knows the reality is there, but he's actually instituting the signs as an aid to faith in the reality, in my opinion. That's, that's me speaking, but that's how I view that. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. Right. Yes, it might be on this one, too. There it is. We just cover it up so you can't see it. <laughs> um, what's that? 
Undercover Baptist. Yes, Ann? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I, no, I think the idea of remembering is that's very, very true. Um, okay, so let me let me go to the Reformed view, and then I'll try to explain uh, a little bit of uh, some of my personal thoughts on this. Hopefully, to try to bring the Reformed and the Memorial closer together. Um. The reform view is spiritual presence. Uh, the Lutheran view is built on something called ubiquitousness. And ubiquitous just means everywhere at once. It's, it's, what, it's what God is. God is everywhere <laughs> uh, at one time. But, uh, but we don't believe that the physical body of Jesus is everywhere at once. We believe that Jesus' physical body is limited to one place at a time. And right now, where is Jesus? He's at the right hand of God. So when we say that Jesus is in Peter, we believe that it's the Holy Spirit who is in Peter, or the Spirit of Christ. You can, same, it's not two different spirits, it's the same Spirit, but the Spirit, Holy Spirit, Spirit of Christ is in Peter, therefore uh, Peter is with Christ. Okay, that's it's a spiritual union. Um, so, it's a spiritual presence. We do believe that grace is given. It, otherwise, Jesus wouldn't like command it, and I'll explain this in a minute. Um, we believe that that as in every reception of any blessing from God, faith must be present. So to actually partake of communion when you're not believing, I mean, we all have weak faith, we all have doubting faith, but to actually reject the fact of, of Christ and who He is and then partake of communion and think you're going to get a blessing from that, that's ridiculous. Okay? So we also believe it's not necessarily tied to the moment. So we would, we would be for a regular participation in the sacrament, even if you're not personally feeling blessed uh, as you leave the sacrament or as you go through the week or whatever, like, I don't know what that did, you know. We, we're just saying that there is a grace present that you don't even necessarily have tied to that moment. We also believe that because of these things, that judgment also has to be present. So one of our arguments for, the, um, for that communion is a sacrament and not just a mere memory um, is that Jesus and Paul attaches judgments to it. So if you partake of it wrongly, bad things can happen to you. Okay, And that's, we'll talk about that more when we get to 1 Corinthians 11. But, but this matters to God. Like There are no uh, judgments attached to baptism, for instance. That you never see in the New Testament someone saying, well, if you don't partake of baptism correctly, you're going to bring judgment of God down on yourself. But with communion, that is a real possibility. Okay, so, so that's part of this, that there is a judgment. Do it. Whereas like in the Catholic view, and even somewhat in the Lutheran view, it's just like, it's all good. It is all good. It is all good. There's no bad necessarily. But you can partake of communion in a way that actually makes God angry. Okay, so that's... So anyway, so 
Let me just explain to you how Dr. Kelly explained this to me. And I, I not only trust Dr. Kelly, but I, I think he's done a great job in articulating this to us. So, so Christ is on his throne in heaven. You are here on the earth. Okay? Um, the Holy Spirit unites you to Christ. Okay? And, but He doesn't just unite you to the Spirit of Christ. This is, this is a key to the Reformed position. You're not just united to His soul. You are united to His whole person, body and soul, His whole being. So this is where um, a lot of times in Scripture it will say things like, you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. I'm down here. He doesn't even say your soul is seated with Christ in the heavenlies. He says you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. So, so you are brought up and exist here. And at the same time, Christ is brought down to you. And the way Dr. Kelly would say, and this is somewhat mysterious, I don't know how else to say it, it's like he collapses space and time. And you are united with the blood and body of Christ. And, and everything that has happened to Christ is yours. Which is why things like you have been crucified with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. It's not just, um, I think a lot of our mentality is that when it says that you've been crucified and raised with Christ, it's just basically saying you have been personally converted or born again. But I don't think that's all that it's saying. I think that personal conversion and being born again is a part of this because your soul is being awakened by the work of the Holy Spirit. But you have not just been like woken up from a dream, you have been elevated with Christ up into the heavenly realms. You exist with Christ now in the heavenly realms. You're united with Him in His flesh. Where His fleshly body is, you are. In my opinion, that is where the mystery needs to lie. I don't know how that can be. I can tell you theologically, He's my covenant head. Legally, He's my representative. But, but I think there's a mystery going on here that I exist with Christ even right now. He's not a decapitated person up in heaven. His body exists with him even now. And that's the beauty of this, the Reformed argument, in my opinion. We just say, there's a mystery here, that a reality that I do not understand. Just like the Lutherans would say that, I'm glad that they have their type of mystery. But it's limited it doesn't require me to think that Jesus physically is in two places at once. <laughs> He's in heaven. That's where he is. And he'll be there until he returns. So, all right. Um, this being said, <clears throat> I don't know, maybe some of you guys 
hold to more of the memorial baptistic position it would be hard to like maybe to even come clean right come open with that if that's where you are but it's a very respectable position but if you are this is what the illustration i'm going to give you is the illustration that i hope will bring our two positions together because we're both dealing with an incredible mystery that we don't really understand Every Baptist that I know of who is memorial when it comes to the sacraments is sacramental when they come to preaching. What do I mean by that? If a man of God gets up into the pulpit and preaches, is that man's word or God's word? Every, they're going to say it's God's word. God is preaching. Is it, is it up to the man to somehow be able to have the exact right thing to say to convert somebody's soul, or is he relied upon God? Is it true that every time a man preaches, someone is converted? No. Even if they preach calling someone to conversion. So every Baptist understands that it, even though that grace is being given in the preaching of the Word, that God is somehow present in the authoritative preaching of God, God's Word, doesn't always save. It's still connected to the sovereignty of God, right? And do we not also believe that when you preach and you reject the grace of God in preaching that there is a judgment to that? We should. So there's a sense where even preaching itself is sacramental. There's a reality going on that's more than just the preacher. And as a preacher, it's hard to believe that all the time because you know there's a human side of it. It's me. I know my frailties. I know my imperfections. I know all these things. And yet, God is preaching. If you just think it's a human endeavor, you might as well not even come. It's not a lecture. How do you resolve that with what you previously said about where you didn't feel like the Word of God was being preached, so you didn't participate in communion? All right. Well, the, uh, the preacher is not the originator of the message. I mean, in the New Testament, Paul was, because the Holy Spirit spoke directly to him at times. But for us, everyone since the closing of the New Testament canon, um, the, the preaching, if it's true preaching, has to be in accordance with what has already been handed down to us. So if I deviate from that and I teach something like, you don't have to believe in Jesus to be saved, I'm actually, I'm a false prophet. I'm, I'm actually teaching something that goes against what, what Scripture teaches. So, um, and so uh, it is possible for a church to become a synagogue of Satan because they're actually teaching things that are contrary to the truth of the Word of God. So I always say, I'm the mailman. I am not the writer of the letter. So I have to deliver the truth. And as long as I deliver the truth of what's in the Scripture then God's Word and Spirit will, will move to, to change hearts. And I have to trust in that. And if a pastor decides to deviate from that, then he's going to stand before Christ and be judged for that one day. So, but it's not, even in that, Paul would say, it's not my eloquence, it's not my delivery, it's not, it, it is the facts of the promises of the gospel themselves that save. That answer that or not? 
sounds like we can't really determine whether we are listening to a synagogue of Satan or a synagogue of the Lord unless we're like the Bereans and we're searching what the pastor is Yep, doing. sure it is. You need to keep going to the text of Scripture, which is also why I think that we should be happy that there's no longer new Scriptures being written, because otherwise you could say, well, maybe you got something different. He's given no. It has to be in accordance with the Scriptures themselves. Yes. And, and uh, which is also why it's very healthy to be involved in a congregation that is congre- uh, confessional, uh, and that you know that your preacher has been uh, ordained um, and examined based upon the, the historic understandings of the gospel that have been handed down to us from generations. That's really important as well. Uh, so there's checks and balances because getting a false view... I lived in a church where they were preaching the truth and little by little I saw the preachers less and less teach the truth. And, and I saw a church go from being a vibrant church to one that was no longer biblical. And the, you could see the faith shrivel up in the hearts of the people that listened every week. It happens all the time. And if it's no longer biblical, is that participating in false worship? Then? Yes. Okay, now take that then to the sacrament. This is why I didn't partake of the sacrament in that church, because I am under an oath that I cannot even administer the sacrament unless I proclaim to you the gospel. So if I'm not even able to administer the sacrament, why I felt like I was at a higher level of um, uh, responsibility even than my family. And I gave them that freedom. The kids were in high school and, and, uh, or maybe junior high. They were taking communion here, I know that. And I said, you're going to have to decide this for yourself, you know, uh, and... I didn't. I made my own choice based on my convictions at that time. Um, but if you're not hearing the truth of the gospel, you shouldn't take because because the signs can mean anything if they're not filled with the truth that is in the signs. Are you following that? Like that's why it's so. They have to even more than the preached word. The signs. I mean, you could. Okay, we all partake of the body of Christ. Therefore, if you partake of communion, man, you're in. You're going to heaven. Is that what the sign means? No, it's not what the sign means. But, but you could think that if you didn't have the good preaching to try to help you understand what's going on there. So. It seems like Paul would call it partaking with demons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, he, I think he does. Well, he talks about the, the Jewish synagogues as synagogues of Satan because they're rejecting Christ. Uh, he wouldn't have done that before Christ, but since the rejection of Christ, that turned them into that. So, um, yeah. So, Mike, yeah. back to that question. So when you said the gospel was not being preached, mm-hmm. was that something that you had consistently seen, or was there something that that day you were there at church, at that church, what? Yeah, this, there were... I've actually kind of gone up and down with... Uh, my mom doesn't go to that church anymore, so I'm not there uh, regularly now to know anything about it. But up until COVID, she went, and we would always go with her to that church. And it was the church I grew up in, and I knew uh, true believers in that church, and people have been there for generations. And, um, and I could see that some preachers 
this is coming as a person who's been trained in trying to understand the gospel and how to do sacrament. Uh, it was clear that some, some, uh, preachers, some of the preachers were truly trying to present the sacrament exalting Christ, and some were not. And this was one particular person that I, um, I just felt like that they did not present Christ at all. In fact, was in, a, in essence robbing glory from Christ. It wasn't just a hazy presentation of the gospel. It was, I just, no, I didn't like it. <laughs> so, huh? Was the preacher disciplined? Oh, not in their church, no, no. <laughs> Could have been, but no. Can I ask, was it ELCA or Missouri Synod? ELCA, yeah. Well, that could happen in Reformed churches today. It could in PCA. I mean, the whole idea of paid communion, and we'll get to this when we get to chapter 11, is, is an issue even within our own denomination. Um, and uh, I'm not for it, but uh, actually I strongly, vehemently am opposed to it. Uh, but, yeah, it is, it, it's a real issue. So. They sound a whole lot different. Ordinance and no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, the use of an ordinance is just something that men do. It's an, it's an, we have an order of worship. It's, it's the focus on what we do. Sacrament technically only means, sacra meaning holy, meant meaning like a holy thing. Um, so, but the meaning is, that if you believe in a sacrament, then you're believing that God is actually doing something. It's not just what the believer or the worshiper is doing. That God is doing something. There is a grace that He is working. And I would argue that the difference between preaching and a sacrament of communion is that preaching can encourage the believer to keep believing, but it can also call the unbeliever to belief. The sacrament of communion is for the believers. It's not saying that an unbeliever can't see it and learn from it, but, but they don't, it's not for them. So the way I look at it, there's a, there's a personal side to communion that's different than preaching. If I say, believe in Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, it's like scattering seed out there. And some people will believe and some people won't. But when I give communion, or when the elders give communion, because it's not just me, and Christ is the host, it's just like he was at the Lord's Supper, and he was saying to people, you know, John, this is my body. You know, eat of my flesh, John. It's, it's personal. Does that make sense? So it's, it's meant for those who are already in the, the faith. Calvin called it the kiss of Christ. So it's like he's coming up to you personally and saying, all that I have done has been for you. And it's, that there's a more personal side to that. It's very beautiful and precious. In my opinion, it's, it's it, having worked with kids on communion for 25 years, I think that all of us wrestle with the fact that Christ lives in you. We don't get that. 
I don't get it. I live as, you know, oh, my prayers, they just bounce off the ceiling. Well, who cares? Then you have to go to the ceiling. You're either with him in heaven already, or he's with you right here. There's no bouncing off the ceiling. He's with you. He's in you. And so, like, we just don't live our Christianity that way. And I hope that's what Colossians has been doing for us. It just says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. And I think that communion is designed to press that home to you. You are in Christ. You are partaking of His body and blood. He is one with you. And and He's not just out there. He's in here. And so what I like to tell kids all the time when I go through communion with them is say, you take that piece of bread and you look at it and you say, man, that's real. That is there. You, you, you think, you smell it. You put it in your mouth. You taste it. And the, and the saliva mixes with it. And after a while, after chewing it and swallowing it, you can't even discern where the bread uh, stops and the, and the, uh, the saliva, you know, where the distinction is. They're just both in there working, doing something. And I said, that reality, that unity, that, that nourishing of your body is no different than you being nourished by the body and blood of Christ. His death for you. You are, yeah, you failed him today. Okay, he says, get up here and draw near to me and I will cleanse you and I will forgive you and I will renew you and give you more strength. You know, we think, oh, I've done something wrong today. I need to run from God. And he's saying, no, come to me. I am with you. And that's why I, I, I do have a heart for communion in the sacraments because I don't think we view them that way. And we, we're afraid to view them as the realities, which I think is right, but we're afraid to then engage them in saying, yes, I don't feel close to you. I feel ashamed. I feel like you might be pointing your finger at me, but you're telling me that I am in you right now. That's what you should be getting from communion. It is. And it's why I'm Reformed and not Memorialist. Yes. Mm. Anyone can do it. Mm-hmm. And the elements don't even have to be correct. I mean, I've seen people, we're going to take communion and use chicken and coke. Mm-hmm. And I'm serious. Mm-hmm. And I was, mm-hmm. you know, that was my background came, uh, came out of that view. I, I still wrestle, but the fact that the third cup, <clears throat> blessing was used, that's what was, you know, there's a blessing in it. And I saw, I remember telling Daniel, I saw the fact that judgment was a part of it too. So obviously, and I think that's spoken very nicely, very humbly, uh, and uh, just a, it's, it's a beautiful thing. I, I do not get all this. I don't understand it all. Um, sometimes uh, there's, a, there's a guy, Wallace, that wrote a book, uh, Calvin's View of Word and Sacrament which he just like sucks all the different things of Calvin wrote all in all of his commentaries and systematics and pulls it all into one book. And that's pretty helpful to read him on that. Because uh, Calvin's grappling. Like, if you, Calvin is a biblicist. Like he loves the Bible. So he's going to take a passage and he's going to try to teach that passage 
in its fullness of where it is, even if he doesn't get it all wrapped around in his mind perfectly. And um, so... <clears throat> <laughs> you could be. You could be. Um, I mean, I've heard every different form of sermon. I've been, I've actually, you know, I, I, my mom's church now is a memorialist church uh, that goes in communion. I partake of communion there. I don't have any problem with that at all. And I think he's exalting Christ. He's actually pointing me to Christ. I just happen to think there's more going on than he allows for. But, you know, it, it's, it's still there. Yeah. Yes. Because you can't even understand and appreciate what's going on if you have no, no uh, communication of the gospel and communication of what the sign is pointing to. Yes. And, and that's why in the preaching, and you'll hear me do this a lot, I try to tie it with whatever text I'm preaching in the uh, sermon. But then I also... Um, if it's not a direct text of explaining the gospel, I try to explain that as well. And I'm always trying to, in one way or another, help you understand the mystery of Christ in you. That's uh, because I, I think that if Christianity is lived by faith, you cannot engage faith without some hearing of the truth of the word and then embracing it. So it has to be there. And if you take away faith and it's just kind of this mechanical, I'm just going through the motions of it, you're not really engaging it. So I appreciate the memorialist in that sense that you have to be, you have to clearly be saying what's going on, what's happening, and am I believing that? Because roteness can happen in any congregation. And I'm not opposed to people doing it every week. I have found that it's easier for me to prepare to deliver it to you if I do it once a month. Um, and uh, some of you may want more. Some of you may want less. I don't know. But we just made a point of doing it once a month. So, Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus Christ. And thank you that by the Spirit of God, Christ lives in me. And I live in Christ. And I pray that uh, there may be people here who have never truly embraced Christ. And I pray the knowledge of that, what I just said, would, would powerfully affect them to understand their true need of Christ. And they would cast everything upon Him and look to Christ for their salvation. But there are many others, Lord, who do believe in Christ. And yet they struggle every day. To continue believing. And they need encouragement. And I pray that the sacrament would do that in their hearts along with your word. In Jesus' name, amen.